The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts 16, 13 to 18. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, good morning to everybody. Hope you're doing well. Are you there? Good morning. Hey, there it is. I know it's spring break. People are like, I'm checking out. So, uh, hi, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, uh, welcome. I know we probably have a lot of visitors here this morning uh, visiting in to uh, Nash Vegas for uh, uh, spring break. So, welcome and welcome to the snow and uh, all those fun things. So, you got the third winter, as we've been saying in our house. Uh, that we've had, which is somewhat unusual uh, for Nashville. But if you're new, I'd love to uh, meet you. And if you're uh, here and you would consider yourself a, a, somebody who's living in Nashville and haven't gotten to meet you yet, I'd love to get to know you and your story and help you plug into the uh, life of our church and into the city better. So uh, grab me, get me, uh, get my email or uh, grab me afterwards. Let's get some coffee and lunch and uh, hang out soon. Um, you know, I don't know if you, speaking of winter, uh, I don't know if you watched, it was probably the lowest uh, watched uh, Winter Olympics of all time. But uh, yeah, they did their best to try and get us to watch. They even tried to couple it with the Super Bowl. You know, there's all those things like, how many celebrities can we get on a commercial to get them to watch uh, the uh, Winter Olympics? Now, some of you are like, well, I love the Winter Olympics. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're one of the three people that watched the Winter Olympics this year. And uh, it just is, for some reason, just was not as uh, watched, which it is fun. You know, I love the stories like Sean White, and uh, some others that are really fun to watch during the Olympics. It's fun to, to see that. But uh, the thing I love about watching it is uh, the two things. One, the stories, but two is the technicality of some of it. Now, I typically watch the Summer Olympics more in the winter, but sports to me are often overlooked as this, uh, you just do this thing, it's entertainment. But there's so much intricate detail that goes into the work that these athletes were doing because they, they didn't really, they weren't, competing for our, you know, viewing. They were competing because they loved the sport. And a lot of what they do, particularly things that they work on, like the uh, figure skaters. So 
uh, a lot of what they're learning, and, and, and I know you may watch this, is you know when they pull their arms in and go out for what they have to learn is, is centrifugal and centripetal motion, the difference between those two. So when they're pulling their arms in, that's considered centripetal motion. And to do that, they have to learn not just, okay, you pull your arms in, but they're having to learn every technical work of that so that when they do that, you're like, physics, why am I learning physics? Word? Centripetal motion, they go faster. Uh, when I was in college, I ran track. I, uh, I, was, I had to learn a lot of uh, different details to that. I threw discus and shot put and, and did some other uh, events. And when I did that, though, I had to learn how to throw a shot put and a discus because there were a lot of guys that were bigger than me. And so I had to learn real technical uh, skill to, okay, how do I launch this further? So I had to learn, how do I use centrifugal motion, that working out uh, inside out motion of getting that discus to plane just right. I don't know if you watched the Summer, Summer Olympics, it was incredible. Like a few guys, there was actually a throw off between these two guys for the, uh, the record in the shot put. Some of you are like, I don't watch shot put, but I loved it. So it was really amazing watching these 325 pound guys get in this small ring and go as fast as they can to launch this shot put. I mean, we're talking 80 feet, insane amount of feet. It was so cool. Uh, you know, it, it, one of my favorite writers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who's a, a kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis, said when he was talking about what Christianity is, he actually put it this way. He said, Christianity is centrifugal, not centripetal, like many other religions. In other words, there are many religions that are centripetal. They work from the outside in. It helps you uh, better yourself. It helps you work on certain things. It helps you center yourself. Christianity is unique and different in that it is centrifugal. It begins by the Lord entering in and working outward. It is an inside-out work of a relationship. And in fact, as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we're kind of getting close to the uh, end of our, our series in it, and we're looking at this book of Acts. The, the question that Luke is answering a lot is, and Luke who wrote Acts, he wrote, if you're familiar with that name, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. His Luke was his volume one, Acts was his volume two. And he was writing to someone who was wondering and asking, what is this Christian movement? What is this Christian thing? And when he was explaining it, he was saying, okay, Acts was written to answer the question, how does Christianity move and the good news of Jesus Christ break out of this small area of Jerusalem into the rest of the world? How in the world does it go and transform all these people of different types, of different nations, of different tongues? How does it go there? And that's exactly what we're seeing. It's because it's a centrifugal religion. And I would say even more so, it's a centrifugal relationship. That the Lord himself comes and the good news goes out so that when you even see in this passage, we saw two, we're going to look at three. I'm actually going to read a little bit further in this passage. Three different people from three different backgrounds in the area of Philippi, which, uh, where Paul writes that letter Philippians, he's writing to this area. You see a, 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 a very successful businesswoman in Lydia. You see a slave girl who's young and entrapped by her uh, economic uh, surroundings. And you see what we'll see is a Roman jailer. All three coming from complete different areas, complete different backgrounds. And yet what breaks into their lives to transform them? It's simply Paul and Silas living out the centrifugal force of the gospel. 
that wherever they were walking, speaking, living, sitting, even imprisoned, that it was working inside out. So oftentimes we talk about the language of evangelism. What is evangelism? And sometimes that word can make people really kind of like, what does that mean? Is that something I'm supposed to do? But this passage is showing us that what it is, is us living out the, the good news of a relationship we have in Christ emanates everywhere we go. Whether we're speaking, living, doing, suffering, rejoicing, whatever it looks like, that that's the motion. It works inside out to transform around us. So this morning, we're going to look at, instead of three points, three people, we're going to look at Lydia, this slave girl, and then finally this jailer at the end of the passage. So starting in verse 13, we're going to look at Lydia, who it says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. <clears throat> right off the bat, when, when Paul and Silas enter the city and they go, and they usually did this, they would find an area, where are those people who are already God-fearers? And what a God-fearer was, or someone who was of Jewish descent, was somebody who, uh, in this case was God-fearer, was people that didn't necessarily have that Jewish religion. That Lydia was not Jewish. Uh, and in fact, going to a place of prayer, in order to have a synagogue in their city, they had to have at least 10 male Jews. So they didn't even have 10 male Jews in their city. So where we live, maybe in a Nashville, where you can throw a stone and hit maybe three different churches, they did not have that many, that many people living there. So in order for them to worship, they went to a, a certain place and gathered this as a place of prayer to the riverside. And they gathered to pray. And Lydia, not even being Jewish, though, you could see that she's observing the Sabbath. This is a part of her life. But she also was somebody from Thyatira. And that city selling purple was incredible business. She was an incredibly successful businesswoman. Purple was a, uh, a hot commodity. It was, if, if you're familiar with it, even the color, it represents royalty. So it was often being sold out. It was a high commodity around uh, to cities around it. And Thyatira was a wealthy city. So this was a woman who knew her stuff. She had kind of her life in order. You even read later in this and we'll see. She had a family. She had her job. She had uh, her religion. She was set. She had everything set together. So what does Paul do to bring to her? What does Paul say? What would he bring to her to transfer, transform her inside out? And I love that we get a quick picture of that in verse 15. And she was uh, in verse 16, uh, 14, rather. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that we actually get to see somewhat of the formula of God's work into her heart. That it's not just this kind of, and, and oftentimes when we talk about how does the gospel go, how does the good news of Christ get brought out, that you get to see here that God opened her heart to receive the message, that it had to be something that entered into her heart. And the heart for her wasn't the emotional seat, it was actually the whole person. So the way the Bible speaks of a heart is a whole person, that it entered into her life in a way it never had before. Here was a woman who had everything together, and yet it did not get to the inside. 
Uh, I know you've, like I mentioned before, you've seen all the snow, but a few, gosh, I guess it was a month or two ago, uh, we had a major snow, a huge blizzard-ish kind of thing. For Nashville, it's a blizzard, where most of us, when it snows, like everybody shuts down, people buy all the bacon and, and bread off the shelves. They're like, I'm not going out, I'm scared, you know. And then the people who are from the north that live here are like, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, so it's kind of this amalgam of sorts. But, but I don't know if you noticed, but when it snowed, we had, uh, the, a couple months ago, we were able to build like a lot of like fun stuff in our backyard, sledding. Uh, we made a tunnel that was pretty legit. I mean, it was like, but you had to pack it down. It was high powder. So I had to like, we pile, pile, pile the snow, pack, 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 pile, pile, pack, pack, pack. And when you did that, then we could like carve out a, a tunnel so we could sled through the tunnel. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So um, I thought it was cool, but... Um, so, but what was unusual is as the weather got warmer is everything melted except for the tunnel. Like there in our backyard is this snow ice tunnel, which is just so weird. And, the, and even when it got upwards of like 20 degrees above freezing, that thing just stayed. And my kids were like, what is the, this is so wild. I mean, it's so nasty because it's still wet in the backyard, but here's this cool tunnel. Even when I took them to drop off at school, I would see um, this mound of ice and snow and, uh, you know, from people shoveling it out of the, the driveways and, and parking lots and sort of thing. You know how it is. You push it to the side and what happens? It sits there and then it starts getting brown and it starts collecting leaves and dirt. And it's just this kind of nasty mountain of things. And I remember my boys were like, can we go play in that? I'm like, no, no, that is not the good snow. That is bad snow. But how does it do that? Have you ever wondered that? Like, even when it gets super hot, it stays there. Well, they say that, like, it, 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 within it, 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 the outside kind of crystallizes. Inside, it becomes almost like its own weather system. That it's so cold and intense inside that nothing really can melt down. It takes forever for that thing to melt down because it can't get into the center of it. And you can push those around or whatever else, like you can shovel snow and get it to another direction or move it out of its way. But it just, until it gets into the middle, it doesn't melt. You have to break open those things and actually let the heat and warmth get into it to actually take hold and melt that. And that's very similar to where Lydia probably was. <clears throat> and maybe many, many of us are. I mean, for a lot of us, maybe... The, the, the point of church and Christianity and, and, and God and being a part of our lives is a part of that successful thing. You know, having our life run well is a picture of godliness. But all we're actually doing is we're really just moving the snow pile around. We're not really getting into the middle. It's still cold and dense and frozen. And until it's broken open, until the Lord comes to the deepest parts of us, we will not transform. We will continue to be what we think is great, what we think is put together. I mean, this Lydia had it all. She was the person that we often look at. And, and I even was talking to several women this week that feel the pressure of a picture like Lydia or looking at a, a passage that many, some of you may be here and familiar with the Bible called Proverbs 31, where it talks about this woman who is, uh, has her family life together and has uh, her, her uh, worship of God together and has her business and all this thing. But there's this, this just the pressure that this is what it means to be an accomplished person. 
You know what Paul probably brought to her in the good news of the gospel is to bring to her and the rest of those at that riverside to say, it is not about your accomplishments. It is not about you and what your successes are that are a measure of your relationship to God. It is about what Jesus has accomplished. It is not just about the Ten Commandments. Yes, they learned that, they loved that. As a God-fearer, she would have adhered to that even as a, as a non-Jew or the customs that you can pick up. It's about what is the tabernacle pointing to as well. It's about what you can't get to. I remember I was in third grade. <laughs> I was just thinking of this recently. And um, I remember I was really struggling in particularly math. It may have been some plenty of other subjects, but I remember math. And I remember getting some grades that, you know, you get this folder, you're supposed to take it home and your parents are supposed to look at it and they sign it and they send it back, right? Well, what did I do? I took out all the bad grades and I shoved them in my locker and I took all the good grades home. And it was awesome because then when I opened it up, it was like, yes, you're doing great. And I'm like, I'm doing great. And yet at the top of my locker is just a pile of bad grades. And what happens? Well, not all these grades are being signed and brought home. Where, you know, where's the communicate? My parents are like, well, these are the grades that were brought home. Oh, what's the person in the middle that's missing the communicate? It's me. <laughs> trying to hide what I am so ashamed of that did not want them to know. That is a mere grade compared to the multiple myriad depths of things that we are all hiding and ashamed of. And here's what's incredible. The good news of Jesus isn't to speak just into the things you're hiding in the corners of your heart that you think, if I even look at that and acknowledge it, there's no It's not just those, it's also the ways that you bring just your best self and think that's the only way he can love you. If that's the only way we think he will take us in, if that's what the, that's not good news, that's only news. It's not good news of the gospel if all we hear is take my, take my best, leave my worst. Jesus takes it all. And that can be one of the most simple sentences you probably heard this week. But that is the good news of the gospel. That's what Lydia needed to hear with everything she had. Oh, she had it all together. But what sealed it for her was not the measure of her life and how good it was going and what she could keep out and what she could keep in. But it was the centrifugal force of what got to the places that no one could and no one knew. The good news of Christ. And that's just one of the people here. The, the next person they run into is this slave girl. Who it says, it's almost a flashback of sorts in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
But when her owners, this is the next verse, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And they would eventually be imprisoned for what they did. This girl, as she's following them, it's a very interesting passage because at first you could read this and go, you know, there's Paul, he's annoyed. He just turns around and says, will you be quiet? It's just like he's walking and this woman keeps speaking, but there's so much more to this passage. What she had was considered uh, the spirit of the python. In mythology, Greek mythology, uh, this is where Apollos killed a serpent. And this was what was considered a voice of the underworld that she could fortune tell. So what happened was these people that knew her enslaved her and utilized her for their gain. So very different from Lydia, who's successful, has agency, is able to to call her own shots, move things around, a high businesswoman. This woman has no agency, no freedom, and everything she does is for those she's enslaved to. And what Paul recognizes here after a number of days isn't that he's annoyed with her speaking. What she's saying isn't these are prophets who are speaking. They're actually, the language is, it could be to any God. Of the most high God could be to any God. And the way of salvation could be anything because also what was happening was she was walking behind. What is she getting? The coattails of anything they would get, she would get. And it could be used for the gain in the wrong direction for the economic life of those with her. And so he turns around and he says something that she has not received. I command you to get out. He speaks to the spirit to get out because what is she? She is enslaved. What does he bring her? Freedom. He brings her freedom in a way that she never has. And what does he do? He casts the spirit out in the name of Jesus, not in any name, but in the name of Christ, in the name of the one who could come and provide freedom. And we use that word freedom, especially in a day of today. The word freedom can be utilized in a cultural setting as all sorts of things. But I want to say that the number one thing I believe is that we can oftentimes worship our freedom more than we can worship the Lord Jesus. We think freedom, maybe freedom is what can get to the heart of me more. If I can just move anything out of the way, they would keep me from that. I mean, we've wrestled with more of our freedoms and issues and arguments and lost friends and loved ones over vaccinations and masks and politics and you name it, you put it on that list all in the name of what we find free. Now, I'm not commenting on any of those things, but what I am saying is what the gospel does is go further than that. I had a dear friend and pastor who lives in town. He works in town in another church who was at Vanderbilt Divinity School for a time. He went over there to study oppressive theology. I don't know if you've studied oppression theology before. It came out of South America. And what it really did was was trying to provide a road for people to say, hey, this religion, and particularly maybe even Christianity, is the biggest one to freedom. And I remember him telling me at the time he wasn't actually even a follower of Jesus. He was studying religion. He can't, it was a part and part of the Lord bringing him to faith in Jesus. But he said every time that he studied that there was a specific oppressor, The problem with oppression theology is that there's always another one behind it. So the moment you get your freedom from 
XYZ oppressor. There's another one waiting just in the wings. So the road always continues to lead to where are you free? Instead of who is the one that frees you? So that's what this passage is getting at. I remember doing a prison ministry here in town years ago. And it was amazing. We got to do a worship service in a prison here. And man, that was incredible. To be able to preach to a crowd. I mean, I could have played a tape. It didn't matter. It took to a group of, of prisoners who, um, they just to hear the good news drove them to such passion and joy. And uh, I remember being with a number of students that I was with, and one of the prisoners came up to one of the students and said, you know, I feel really sad for those outside of these walls because there's a lot of people outside of these walls that are a lot less free than me. And we can take that as whatever we want, sentimentalism, but you know what that man really understood? He understood that as much as he's incarcerated and as much as he knows his record and he sees why he's there, he's reminded every day he wakes up and sees every wall and jail and everything else in front of him and what he has to do that reminds him, I am incarcerated. He recognizes a freedom that many of us miss because we're still pushing around that pile of ice and snow. And yet the freedom of the gospel goes to the depth of us. There's a an incredible theologian named John Calvin that said this. Listen to what he said. Christian freedom in all its parts is a spiritual thing. Its whole force, remember force, centrifugal force, its whole force consists in quieting frightened consciences before God. Is your conscience frightened before the Lord? Where is it, rather? Maybe that's a better question. Because what the good news of the gospel is to do is to free you from the things that we still think will give us freedom or maybe forgiveness that we think are living, and yet they are not the living Lord Jesus. And this is why he turns to her and says, come out of her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to draw her from what she's enslaved to, to the one who can give her relationship in the deepest parts of her that she would never even know otherwise. And you know, after this, there's one final character that could be lost because after he's disrupted, after the the good news of Jesus has disrupted the economy and freed this woman, they're thrown in jail. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately... All the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You have Lydia, who's an incredible businesswoman who learns of the accomplishment of the gospel. You have this slave girl who is freed with the good news of where she is. And what happens to this crusty old Roman jailer? 
practical and pragmatic as can be. And when you're prisoners, as this earthquake happens, if you were to lose a prisoner, you either had to take your own life or it was taken from you. That was the penalty. That, that was your one job. You had one job. You fail at this. What good are you? And you think about, what do they say to Lydia? They speak the gospel to Lydia. What do they do? They free in the work of, of, of faith and work, of even integration, of coming into the life of that slave girl, of freeing her. What do they do with this jailer? They stay. Did you notice that? The congruence of Paul and Silas to have the doors flung open. All of, hey, they can get out. Everybody else did. And yet, what do they see? They see this jailer about to take his own life and they call, no, 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 we're still here. They don't throw a verse at him. They don't sing a hymn at him. They stay. The congruence of character of who you really are with the good news of Jesus? If there are moments in your life to ask that question, it is now. Does that match up? Of who you really, what can get to the depth of your character? It's not behavior modification. I mean, they, they have freedom. They can run out. They can take off. And where is this man brought to Jesus? He's brought to Jesus by them staying there in the jail. There was a book written uh, some years ago by a guy named Oxford professor named Sheldon Van Auken. You heard this man before. He wrote a book about his own coming to faith in Jesus. And um, <clears throat> it's called A Severe Mercy. Listen to what he says. These were our friends. This is him encountering people who are Christians and how he became a Christian. These were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps all five were keen, deeply committed Christians. But we liked them so much, we forgave them for it. We began hardly knowing where we were what we were doing to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid, people to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully, indeed, that we, don't know, we didn't know anything about Christians. Now that assumption soundlessly collapsed, the sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. And thenceforward, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astonishing fact sank home, our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. You know what I love about what Sheldon Van Auken is teaching us here? Is that them just being with? This Roman centurion did not know mercy. He was not going to receive mercy. He had no idea of the character of mercy until they stayed in the jail. All three of these people would be a part of the church that Paul would write a letter to called Philippians. 
I don't know if you read the Bible, but I'd encourage you, if you ever want to have any homework from church, <laughs> read the book of Philippians. It is riddled with the most joy of any letter that Paul has ever written. And the reason is, is for these three people that make up the, the beauty and power of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that centrifugally came into them and bursts out. Each one of these people can do nothing but go home, share the gospel, have their whole family baptized, then begin telling about it in the whole marketplace or wherever they came from. Because it brought a relationship that they had never encountered before. This table, to encourage you, is not a table of work for you. It's not a table that you and I come to and hope that we can get a bit, just grasp a part of it. Notice, the whole point of the Lord's Supper is that you can't smell it or just hold it. You have to, what, take it in. And it's not some magical occurrence that happens. It's the fact that when you take the bread and the wine, you are taking the Lord Jesus in you, that he is doing a work in you that you can't even see, but you know is there. That's what communion is. That's what it means, commune. You're communing with him. That the quality and character is not in your hands to come to this table. It's actually the quality and character of the one who gave their body and blood for you. Even if you're here this morning, you're struggling. If you're like, I'm just in a really hard place. You could come and be reminded again of the good news that transforms you. It's not about you having a great attitude. You may have sang some of these songs this morning. It's been a hard thing for you. But it's about who comes to you in the deepest relationship to transform you with the force of the good news that you've never experienced outside of him before, to go to the deepest parts of you so that you can be reminded of that relationship. And if you're here this morning and, and maybe you're, you're kind of saying, I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus and I'm just kind of trying this out. And maybe you're kicking the tires of the church again. You're just saying, I'm, I, wanna, I wanna just see what it's like. I'd encourage you not to come and just take this because everyone else is. With integrity, wouldn't you wanna learn more about that? Wouldn't you wanna know who that this person is before you really commune or get in a close relationship with them. And you know what I want to even say further is I want to encourage you to come to faith in Jesus. Come to faith in the one who can free you and can transform you in a way that Sheldon Van Aken, the highest intellectual Oxford professor, realized simply because he was in relationship with not Christianity, with Christians, followers of Christ. Praise be to God. Let's stand now.